I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Last episode, we left off at the start of the 19th century, where Russia had begun gaining in strength and some Armenian provinces had established autonomous regions in the area divided between Persia and Turkey. Armenians still call the region of Karabakh Artsakh. So if I ever use the name Artsakh, just know that I'm still referring to Karabakh. Just as a warning, this episode describes the details of the Armenian genocide, which was barbaric and can be quite upsetting to listen to. It's time now to understand how the situation in West Asia led to the creation of Armenia as we know it today, and then the current conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh. This is the contemporary history of Armenia. The First Russo-Persian War began in 1804, and Russian forces defeated Persian troops in several battles leading to the Armenian territories of Shirak, Karabakh, and Zangizur voluntarily ceding to Russian jurisdiction. Turkey next joined the war, but Russia was able to defeat them as well, despite having to fight on two different fronts. In 1812, a peace treaty was signed between Turkey and Russia, and with Persia then in 1813. The Second Russo-Persian War began 14 years later in 1827, and Armenian people pledged their support to Russian troops. Russia captured Tabriz and began moving towards the capital city of Tehran, which forced the Shah of Persia to request for peace, resulting in a second peace treaty in 1828. Ottoman Turkey, though, was still incredibly wary of the Russian presence in the South Caucasus, which led to the Russo-Turkish War of 1828. The Turkish army suffered crushing defeats on both the Caucasus Front and the Balkan Front, resulting in a peace treaty between the two in 1829. And importantly for our episode, this freed the Armenian populations from Ottoman rule. Western Armenian territories still remain under Turkish control, which led to a mass migration event of families to eastern Armenia, which remained under Russian suzerainty. Over the next decade, the Russian government tightened their control over the quote-unquote autonomous Armenian province, including measures such as restricting the activities of the Armenian church and requiring that any political or economic decisions be routed through Russian ministries. The lack of a solid Armenian nation-state meant that there was a gradual degradation of the Armenian identity, as facets of identity, including the Armenian language and culture, became vulnerable to foreign subversion. Despite this, the Armenian population was reaping economic benefits by assimilating into a wealthier state, with a growing business class that became increasingly loyal to Russia. Simultaneously, there was a reinvigoration of Armenian nationalism, a movement that had started centuries ago when Armenians were still under Ottoman rule, 
and then continued in some shape and form fueled by the absence of this autonomous nation-state. We'll come back to Armenian nationalism in just a second. But in the meanwhile, in 1840, the Armenian province in Russia was disbanded. This was immediately before the Crimean War of 1853 between Russia and Turkey once again. The war was slightly different from the previous ones on two counts. First was an instigation by England and France, which led the Ottoman Turks to launch offences around the Crimean Peninsula and on the Balkan and Caucasian fronts. The second reason was that unlike the previous wars, the Russian Empire lost this war on the main front and was forced to cede territories in the Balkans and South Caucasus back to Turkey in exchange for retaining Crimea. This placed more Western Armenian territories back under Turkish rule. And while Eastern Armenia developed under Russian jurisdiction, Western Armenians were still trying to leave home and resettle in Russia. Armenians were protected by Russian law and saw commercial activities grow within Armenian communities. That said, Russia still put its own interests first and did not substantially assist the development of industry within Armenia and mainly used Armenian territories for extracting natural resources. As a result, salt was mined and exported from Kokp and Nakhchivan, and almost all the copper extracted from Alaverdi and Kapan were exported to Russia. During this time, the stagnation of the Armenian regions in the Ottoman Empire was becoming increasingly obvious. For starters, most Armenians were involved in agriculture, employed as peasants who were cultivating lands that were owned by the state. They had to reserve 10% of their harvest for the state and pay a tax to practice Christianity, and on top of that were subject to whimsical extortion of state government and corrupt officials. Armenians were nationally discriminated and ridiculed and did not have any legal protections or rights guaranteed to them. Anger against the Ottoman Empire, so the mountainous region of western Armenia called Zeytun, stand up against the Turkish Empire in 1862. This stimulated the National Armenian Liberation Movement. At this point, it's important to come back to our discussion of Armenian nationalism. The movement since 1850 had been advocating for a national constitution for Armenians in the Ottoman Empire, which finally got approved in 1863 after the uprising in Zeytun. While this still did not provide adequate rights and protections to Armenians, it was a progressive move for Western Armenia. The next major conflict in the region was the Russo-Turkish War in 1877, which saw some regions of Western Armenia, including Alashkert and Bayazet, ceded back to Russia. European powers, meanwhile, were getting reasonably stressed out due to the growing presence of Russia, and for the first time, the question of Armenia was discussed as an international politics agenda in an international congress held in Berlin. The conference pushed for Russia vacating certain Western Armenian territories it had gained as part of the War of 1877, and saw the flow of Armenians once again from these territories that were now getting vacated back to Russia-controlled Armenia. The end of the 19th century saw the rise of the Hayduk movement, as both the Ottoman Sultan became more anti-Armenian and Russia embarked on a policy of national discrimination. As a result, Armenian schools were shut down, the Armenian church was restricted, and Armenian intellectuals faced oppression by both regimes. The constant persecution in an environment of impunity gave rise to a spontaneous military resistance among Armenian populations, called the Haiduk movement. 
A second consequence of national discrimination was the awakening of a national awareness as the national liberation movement became stronger and resulted in the creation of the Armenian political party in 1885 in the western Ottoman-controlled Armenia. It also saw a group of Armenian students in Switzerland founding the Hunchakian party in 1887 and in the city of Tiflis in 1890 the formation of the Dashnak party. The anti-Armenian sentiment of the Ottoman regime fled and saw an increase in economic and social oppression of Armenians accompanied by killings across the 1890s. In 1994, the Armenian region of Sasun rebelled against the Ottoman rule, led by members of the Hunchakian party. The fight that ensued saw the massacre of thousands of Armenians in Sasun at the hands of Turkish mercenaries and troops. Despite the brutal quashing of the Sasun uprising, Armenian populations were incensed and demanded reforms from the Ottoman Empire, leading to demonstrations in Constantinople and another uprising in Zeytun in 1895. The Ottoman government was forced by European powers to reach a compromise with the leaders of these movements and saw the Ottoman Empire grant amnesty to the leaders of the uprising and partial autonomy to Zeytun. Between 1894 and 96. Several hundred thousand Armenians were displaced or killed by the Ottoman Empire. And I want you to note this number because the number of deaths of Armenian people only increases from here on. The start of the 20th century only saw the Armenian liberation movement get stronger. Even in Tsarist Russia, sentiments of liberation were growing as the Armenian revolutionary movement became more closely related with the anti-Tsarist rebellions on the first Russian Revolution in 1905. This was majorly instigated by the Russian confiscation of church's property, as the Hunchakian party oriented themselves with the Marxist-oriented Social Democrats and subsequently the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks. The problem for the Armenian parties was that the Hunchakian remained largely international and disconnected with the on-ground struggles of Armenians, while Armenians had become increasingly aligned to the political and economic interests of the upper classes and the elite. But these movements were still getting stronger. After the revolution, the Tsarist regime began persecuting national political parties, which only stoked the sentiments of liberation among Armenians. Simultaneously, in 1908 and 1909, the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire was forced to abdicate the throne of Constantinople as a result of what was known as the Young Turk Revolution. Allies of the ousted Sultan's regime attempted to recapture Constantinople, leading to massacres in and around the Cilician province of Adana, resulting in the death of around 20 to 30,000 Armenians. In 1911, war broke out between Italy and Turkey, followed by Balkan Wars in 1912 and 1913. These wars led to major losses of land for Turkey and large numbers of Turkish refugees fled from the Balkan colonies to deserted Armenian provinces in the Asian-controlled regions of Turkey. In 1914, a reform act was pushed by the international community, pressuring the young Turk government to carry out reforms in Western Armenia under Russian supervision. Later that year, World War I broke out which pitted Russia as part of the Entente against the Triple Alliance of Turkey, Austria-Hungary and Germany. The Ottoman Empire sought to reclaim land they had lost to Russia under the adopted policy of Pan-Turkism as conscription was instated 
and concentrated armies of Turkish forces were mobilized to the Russian border. On the other side, around 200,000 Armenians were drafted into the Russian army. In 1915, the pan-Turkish nationalist policy of the Young Turk regime became the cause of the Armenian genocide. Turkish armies advanced towards Erzerum and launched sporadic attacks against Armenian populations with the attacks increasing in frequency. It's worth keeping in mind that there were factions of the Ottoman armies who also had Armenian recruits at this time. This was crucial, as their deployment during the war decreased the number of able Armenians to resist the genocide that was to come. On February 14, 1915, the Union and Progress Central Committee took the responsibility of quote-unquote freeing the fatherland of the aspirations of this cursed race. Following this declaration, the Turkish military increased the number of attacks on Armenians across the Caucasus region. Cilicia became mired in a political and military crisis as, after decades of persecution, the Ottoman government deported almost 20,000 local Armenians. Over the course of the year, the military was mobilized to Armenian cities and the number of arrests and deportations increased. The Turkish armies destroyed Armenian villages, while some allied military units with Russian and Armenian personnel managed to push back in particular regions. By June of 1915, 174,000 Armenians had been made refugees, and around 70,000 had been massacred. Armenian intellectuals were captured and humiliated to decrease the steam of the growing Armenian political parties, as the plundering of Armenian cities continued. Over the next two years, several hundred thousand Armenians were made refugees and killed under the thought-out administrative mechanism of systemic destruction of Armenian people by the Young Turk government. By 1918, from a total of around 2.5 million Armenians who lived in Turkey-controlled Armenia, roughly 1.5 million were killed and the others were scattered around the globe. The end of the genocide was brought about by the victory of the Allied forces in World War I, causing the Young Turk regime to collapse, and the Ittihadist leaders were found guilty as perpetrators of genocide by military tribunals and sentenced to death. The horrors of the genocide cannot be overstated, as the then Prime Minister of Turkey, Talat boasted about the extermination of almost the entire Armenian population from Western Armenia. While small factions of Armenians did mount some heroic defences, the genocide resulted in the ruining of 2,000 Armenian villages as well as the destruction of thousands of churches, schools and Armenian quarters. After the genocide, Bardi colonies of Armenia scattered across Asia, Africa and Europe most Armenians were located within the Russian Empire. In December of 1917, the Soviet government granted the right to self-determination to Western Armenia that had been occupied by Russian troops after World War I. Following the territory of Brest-Litvorsk in 1918, Russian troops moved out of Armenian regions, which led to another massacre as Turkish troops occupied the military vacuum and killed several more Armenians. Through the first half of 1918, the existential threat of Turkish troops for Armenian populations loomed large, as Turkey disputed the control of North and South Caucasus with Russia. 
On 28th May 1918, in Tiflis, the Armenian National Council declared independence of the Republic of Armenia and signed the Peace Treaty of Batum with Turkey in June. In 1919, the first elections to the Armenian parliament were held. Meanwhile, the neighbouring countries of Georgia and Azerbaijan had also been declared independent. And while Armenia wanted to reunify with Georgia, their neighbours started arming their borders as they sought to protect their autonomy. This led to various border disputes with Georgia, and the relations of Armenia with both Azerbaijan and Turkey were tense since the establishment of their autonomous border. Border concerns with Azerbaijan were complicated, as Azerbaijan had territorial claims over Nakhchivan, Karabakh and Zangezur, but the regions had predominant Armenian populations. Turkey at this time sided with Azerbaijan in this border row. Further, the post-war economy of Armenia was in tatters, as their population had absolutely no wealth and most of the infrastructure had been destroyed. This saw a famine and an epidemic of typhus ensue for almost a year, and over 180,000 more Armenians died as a result. In 1919, much to the dismay of Armenia, England declared Karabakh and Zangizur as part of Azerbaijan and helped Azerbaijan invade Karabakh and Nakhichevan. After some conflict, by 1920, all three disputed territories came under the jurisdiction of the Republic of Armenia. Soon after, though, Turkey, under the presidency of Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, waged war against Armenia, capturing some Armenian territory, while Georgia captured some in a deal with Turkey. Left without an alternative, as it had been abandoned by its allies, Armenia turned to Russia to mediate peace talks with Turkey. Relations between Armenia and Soviet Russia weren't the best either, and Turkey managed to gain favourable terms of a deal due to these frayed relations, with Armenia having to cede the regions of Kars, Nakhichivan and Mount Ararat to Turkey. In 1921, a defenceless Armenia was once again partitioned between its two powerful neighbours, which led to the establishment of Soviet rule in Armenia. Russia then affixed Nagorno-Karabakh as a territory of Azerbaijan, but owing to the predominant Armenian population, granted it special status as an autonomous region. After the establishment of Russian power in Transcaucasia, the Soviet Union began rebuilding its economy under Lenin, and several new industrial enterprises were opened in Armenia at and during the 1930s. In accordance with Lenin's new economic policy, industries in Armenia collectivized to create large, nationalized firms and industries and saw the development of an education sector. World War II came next, and Armenia contributed in helping USSR's cause. After World War II, Armenia remained under the jurisdiction of the USSR for the next 50 years, effectively till the Declaration of Independence in 1990. There are a few events worth mentioning in the context of Soviet-controlled Russia. The first is that there was significant economic development in Armenia in the post-war era, as they became a large industrial hub and started exporting machinery and minerals like aluminium, molybdenum and copper. A nuclear plant was developed in Armavir, along with the construction of smaller power plants and canals to connect the country. Agriculture was much slower to develop. The second thing that is worth mentioning is that this industrialization brought with it a period of urbanization starting from the 1960s 
as the country continued to develop. In 1980s though, USSR entered a period of great economic recession, and Mikhail Gorbachev in 1985 declared a policy of perestroika and glastost to boost economic development. The policy was largely unsuccessful, and economic fragility translated to political turmoil as the collapse of the USSR began and Kremlin's power waned. The region of Nagorno-Karabakh used this as an opportunity to file a resolution in 1988 to secede from Azerbaijan and unify with Armenia. This led to massive public rallies in support of the region's decision. Clearly unprepared to deal with inter-ethnic tensions, the Kremlin told the regions of Armenia and Azerbaijan to remain calm, but this did little as the Azerbaijani leadership organized a violent takeover of the region of Dagorno-Karabakh. On February 27th to 29th, the Azeris organized violent riots and pogroms in Sumget, which led to several Armenians being wounded, killed, and their properties destroyed. Armenia was quick to react and claimed the region and requested the Supreme Court to ratify their decision. The USSR refused to acknowledge Armenia's claim as rallies erupted in Artsakh in Armenia. On Gorbachev's orders, the Karabakh committee that had filed for secession was arrested as Azerbaijan amped up their efforts to deport ethnic Armenians from the region. Over the course of this year, nearly 300,000 Armenians were deported from Azerbaijan, while almost 200,000 Azeris were forced to move from Armenia back to Azerbaijan. In 1989, public pressure forced the release of the Karabakh Committee as the National Council of Artsakh adopted a resolution to unify Armenia and Artsakh. USSR, of course, declared this resolution void in 1990, and the government of Azerbaijan continued deporting Armenians. Meanwhile, the Azerbaijani Popular Front launched attacks on border towns and the Azeri blockade became permanent. The idea of seceding from the USSR was becoming increasingly popular, and on August the 23rd, 1990, the Supreme Court of Armenia adopted the Declaration of Independence for the Republic of Armenia. The USSR tried reclaiming the region, but were unsuccessful, and in 1991, a referendum saw 94% of Armenians vote to leave the Soviet Union. In 1992, Armenia became a member of the United Nations. All this while, violence in Nagorno-Karabakh continued. The Soviet leadership pledged their support to Azerbaijan's violent attempt at reclaiming the region, while the courageous population of Artsakh resisted. In 1991, the Congress of Representatives of Nagorno-Karabakh population declared the region of Karabakh an independent republic. By now, of course, the international community had begun to take some notice of what was going on in the region, and the UN adopted a resolution calling for Armenia and Azerbaijan to solve the problem diplomatically. After the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1992, the Popular Front came to power in Azerbaijan and rejected offers for a peaceful settlement of the Karabakh question. They surrounded Artsakh with an army and continued the ongoing war. In 1994, finally, there was a ceasefire under the mediatory gaze of Russia. Armenia, Azerbaijan and Karabakh 
signed an agreement to cease military activities, but the peace negotiations stretched on. In 1995, Armenia adopted a new constitution which declared the country a republic with a mixed presidential and parliamentary system of governance. The head of state since has been the president, who is elected on a five-year term by the people, and legislative power rests in a single-chambered parliament called the National Assembly, which used to have 190 members elected on a four-year term. After an important referendum in 2005, the parliament was cut down to 131 members and their powers were increased apropos that of the president's. Local government bodies are elected, but state governors are appointed by the president on recommendation by the prime minister. Immediately after independence, Armenia suffered from a socio-economic crisis, more of which I'll talk about in the next episode. In 1996, a second elections were held in the country, but they were deemed to be rigged as the incumbent president, Ter Petrosian, was re-elected and Armenia entered a period of political crisis. Splits on views on domestic and foreign policies, especially on the method of settling the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, led to preterm election in 1997, which ousted the incumbent president. After parliamentary elections in 1999, a new leadership began to take steps to improve the lives of Armenians as the country climbed out of a state of crisis. There was one significant hiccup, as on October the 27th, an armed gang of extremists broke into the National Assembly and assassinated several members of the legislative leadership while taking others hostage. After 24 hours of negotiations, the hostages were finally released and the terrorists surrendered and were eventually handed out life sentences after trial. And that finally brings us to this, the 21st century, when Armenia gradually got its economy back on track. They held regular presidential elections in 2003 and 2008, with both elections met with wide protests across the country for reasons such as corruption, rigging of election, and of course, the treatment of the Karabakh question. In light of the protest after his election in 2008, Serg Sargsyan's government led mass arrests of opposition supporters and placed a de facto ban on any anti-government protests. The Sargsyan government had then agreed on diplomatic ties with Turkey and accepted the existing border between the two countries, but tensions with Azerbaijan were still on the rise. In 2011, the Arab Spring's fervour spread to Armenia as mass protests broke out against the regime for the arrests they had conducted in 2008. Discontentment against the Sargsyan government only rose and he was elected as Prime Minister in 2016, having served his term as President. This led to the Armenian Revolution of 2018, also called the Velvet Revolution, which was led by Nikol Pashinyan, who is the current Prime Minister of Armenia. The levels of trust in the government were abysmally low, and Pashinyan and the protesters demanded that Sargsyan step down as Prime Minister. In the second time of forwarding his candidacy, Pashinyan was elected as the Prime Minister and is currently serving alongside President Armin Sarkisyan. And what of Nagorno-Karabakh, you might rightly be thinking? Well, since the ceasefire in 1994, clashes have continued, and in 2008, the UN passed a resolution that Armenian troops should evacuate the area. As per the UN, of course, Nagorno-Karabakh is recognised as a territory of Azerbaijan, 
but a majority of the population residing in the region are still ethnic Armenians. Efforts to maintain the ceasefire of 1994 have largely been futile. Following the UN resolution, several other bodies also demanded that Armenian troops be withdrawn from the Karabakh region, and in 2016, violence flared up once again. The Armenian Defense military alleged that Azerbaijan had launched an offensive to forcefully seize the territory, resulting in the cumulative death count of about 30 soldiers from both sides, with several others wounded. On the morning of September 27th, in 2020, fresh clashes began along the Nagorno-Karabakh line of contact with an Azerbaijani ground offensive. Initially, the Armenian and Artsakh troops were pushed backed by Azeri artillery, but military capital losses seemed symmetric. On the sixth day of conflict, both sides began trading targeted artillery and missile strikes against infrastructure. Alarmingly, hospitals and schools in Stepanakert, the capital of Artsakh, were hit in a major offensive from Azerbaijan beginning the seventh day. Azerbaijan has also relied on drone strikes against Armenian troops and the conflict has spread to various points on the border, not exclusively the buffer zone between the two nations. On October the 9th, both sides agreed to a humanitarian ceasefire, with both Armenia and Artsakh admitting that Azerbaijan had made some territorial gains. Azerbaijan announced further territorial capture across October and began advancing towards the Lachin Corridor, which connects Armenia to Artsakh. On November the 8th, the Azerbaijani president claimed that Shusha, the second largest city of Artsakh, had been captured. The 9th of October ceasefire was largely unsuccessful, but a second, more successful ceasefire was brokered on the 10th of November. According to the agreement, both belligerent parties undertook the exchange of prisoners of war and the dead. Furthermore, Armenian forces were meant to withdraw from the Armenian-controlled territories surrounding Nagorno-Karabakh by the 1st of December. These included Lachin, Shusa, Agdam and Kalbajar, leading to another large migration event of Armenians back to internationally recognised Armenia. To ensure execution of this agreement, approximately 2,000 Russian peacekeeping forces from the Russian ground forces have been deployed in the region, for a minimum of five years. One of their tasks is the protection of the Lachin Corridor, which connects Armenia to Nagorno-Karabakh. Additionally, Armenia has undertaken to guarantee safety of passage between mainland Azerbaijan and its Nakhichevan exclave via a strip of land in Armenia's Sionik province. The result of this ceasefire, though, has been widespread discontentment within Armenia, as protesters have stormed the capital city of Yerevan and are demanding that Prime Minister Pashinyan step down. The opposition parties are increasing the pressure on Pashinyan as civil disobedience across Armenia increases. Meanwhile, the Human Rights Watch has also recently released information that the treatment of Armenian prisoners of war by Azeri forces violates the Geneva Convention and the implication of this breach of human rights is unclear. The conflict is by no means over, and once again, the Karabakh question, almost 150 years after the Armenia question was first discussed by the international community, looms large. Both the military and social infrastructure losses have been substantial, 
and the geopolitical state of the war is getting increasingly complicated as both Turkey and Russia have gotten involved. The bad blood between Turkey and Armenia has meant that Turkish support has been for Azerbaijan, while Russia's relations with either party are slightly more complicated. I will cover the international relations of Armenia and update you on other aspects of the conflict in the next episode. The humanitarian damage of this war has also been immense, with multiple schools and several thousand houses being destroyed. The impact of this is an environment of existential dread across Armenia, with mass human displacement and despair, and I would urge you all to read and watch interviews of people on the ground. In the meantime, I do believe Artsakh is strong, and I hope the conflict will de-escalate soon. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I hope to see you in the next episode. This has been about the Republic of Armenia. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.